We begun a series from the pulpit entitled Understanding the Times, analyzing the worldviews that are at the heart of the political divide in the United States of America and how the gospel and the biblical worldview give hope and clarity to these issues. We started off last week and we looked at the gospel itself and This message is available on Sermon Audio. You can go to our Sermon Audio page. You can look up our church, Grace Church of Bull Shoals, or you can search under my name and find that message there if you missed out on it. But what we looked at from the scriptures last week is that when you take a look at the New Testament and the word translated gospel, euangelion, that the gospel is the good news about what Christ has done in order to redeem guilty sinners. The gospel is something that Jesus has done. It's not something that we do. Now, we go and proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ, but Christ is the one who said from the cross, it is finished. We are saved through the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Can we save anyone? No. no, God alone can save and it's through the gospel. So we don't do the gospel, but yet we can be messengers of the gospel and proclaim the gospel. So I pointed out that we have to make sure not to confuse the gospel with our works. And if we use the term gospel to refuse or to refer to our works, then we are getting very close to promoting a false gospel because in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul outlines so very clearly that the gospel is the work that Jesus has done. And the message of the gospel is to believe in Christ through faith. And if we add works of any kind to this, We are preaching a false gospel and we are to be accursed. And we're talking about angels this morning, boys. It says there, even if an angel from heaven comes and preaches any other gospel to you than what I preach, let him be accursed. So God takes the gospel seriously. The gospel, again, is the saving work of God through Christ Jesus on our behalf. And it includes things such as Christ was born of a of a virgin, that he lived a perfectly righteous life, fulfilling all the demands of the law, which we could not fulfill, that he died an atoning death on the cross and secured our redemption, that he rose from the dead. And then Brother Terry was pointing out to me this morning as they were reading through the scriptures in Romans chapter two, the statement there is that people will be judged according to the gospel. The gospel in first Corinthians chapter 15 is that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was buried and he was raised again. So we will be judged according to that gospel message. So if we are in Christ and covered by his righteousness and identifying with him through his death, burial, and resurrection, and our sins have been cleansed through that work of Christ, then we will be judged as righteous. But it's by the gospel, the work that God has done, that judgment will come through Jesus Christ. But for those who do not believe in Christ, do not bow before him in true faith, trusting in him alone to be right with God, then they will be judged 
as well. And their judgment will be, what have you believed about Jesus? And have you bowed the knee to King Jesus in his work, in his glory, his majesty? Have you trusted him? So the gospel is key. If we use terms like gospel issues to talk about social issues that we are engaged in, we run the danger of confusing works and gospel. What we do is not gospel. Now, the gospel applies to the things that we do. We looked at Ephesians chapter 4, and it says that we're to be tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ Jesus, has forgiven us. So we are motivated by the gospel work that God has done in our life. Since we've been forgiving, forgiven, we are to be forgiving people. So that motivates us to do that. But when we forgive someone, we have not done the gospel because only Jesus did the gospel. But we have lived consistently with the gospel, you see. So we need to make sure and draw those distinctions There's some within the church today who I fear are beginning to blur those distinctions. We looked at one such example last week, but again, you can find that message online. Notice I read from Micah chapter six. I'm going to read verse eight again. You don't have to turn there unless you're already there. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to do justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We're going to talk today about justice. What is justice according to God's definition of justice? There's a term that you have probably heard. It's very prolific out there today. And even if you haven't heard the term, the concept has laced itself through Almost every aspect of societal life. And that is the term, the concept of social justice. Social justice. Maybe you've heard it in terms of social justice warrior. If you go to YouTube and search social justice, you'll see all kinds of little videos. Social justice warrior. And you'll see pictures that they've taken of people when they're like spitting mad and their faces are all contorted and there's a social justice warrior, you know. But if you dig deeper past some of those videos, you'll find debates in which people are debating the issues of social justice. You'll find lectures on social justice. And we need to ask ourselves, what is this concept of social justice? What does God say about justice? You think about... Justice, what did I just read from Micah chapter 6, verse 8? The Lord requires of us to do justice. So we need to know if this idea of social justice is according to God's justice. If it is, then we've got to do it because God requires it of us. Okay, so this is no minor issue. The problem is the concept of Social justice, as it's promoted widespread today, is not biblical. So let's look at it and what it is by definition. If you look up definitions of social justice, there are some things that you'll find in common, although a lot of people have different definitions of social justice. But you'll find things such as this. Social justice is the equal access 
to wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. Wikipedia says social justice is a concept of fair and just relations between the individual and society. This is measured by the explicit and tacit terms for the, notice this, distribution of wealth, opportunities for personal activity, and social privileges. So wealth, opportunity, and privileges seem to be something that's at the heart of this concept of social justice. Equal access to wealth, equal access to opportunities and privileges within a society. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary says social justice is a state or doctrine of egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is the philosophy of leveling the playing field so that all things become equal. Okay, So egalitarianism manifests itself in society and the idea of women's rights. Women should have equal rights to do everything that men do in society. We've got to make it an egalitarian society. Egalitarianism has affected most everything in our society, even down to our baseball teams. If egalitarianism is put in place, like in kids' baseball, it's going to be the idea that we're not going to keep score, everybody wins. Because we've got to make everything equal, right? And I'm like, that's nonsense. All the kids want to know is, did we win? Did we win? And we need to encourage them, yes, be good sports, play well. But based into God's very economy, there are incentives for diligence and doing well. We'll talk more about that as we go. The Oxford College Dictionary says this, social justice is in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges. There we have those three things again. Distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within society. Vodi Bauckham in a message on social justice quoted William H. Young, who described social justice as this, quote, the state redistribution of advantages and resources to disadvantaged groups to satisfy their rights to social and economic equality. Bauckham went on to say this, in other words, social justice is redistributive justice, a material process of leveling the playing field for certain groups that are deemed disadvantaged. Social justice, he concluded, is essentially socialism and or Marxism. Okay? So what the concept of social justice does, it divides society into groups that are either viewed as oppressors or victims, depending on the perceived amount of power or wealth in those groups. So why... In our political realm these days, do you always see people focusing on the groups? The women's, the women and the women's rights, LGBTQA plus rights. And each one of those stands for something, and they just added the plus because it was getting so long that nobody could remember all of the letters in there. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer. 
The A stands for allies. If you're an ally of them in promoting their agenda, the plus is we don't want to offend anybody else that hasn't figured it out yet. The poor, minorities of all kinds, African-Americans, Latinos, Hispanics, everything in this concept of social justice is viewing things through the neo-Marxist lens of victim and oppressor. And if you are in a minority group, you are oftentimes automatically classified as being a victim And the majority group is classified as being the oppressor. Now, like Vody Bauckham pointed out, one problem is they include women in this group, but women are not a minority. There are more women in the United States of America, for instance, than men. But yet, they're classified as a disadvantaged group through this lens of social justice. Okay? So they say these groups are being denied their rights. You'll hear a lot of talk about rights. Due to systemic injustices in government and society, and thus the government and society owes it to them to distribute wealth to them, ensure opportunities for them, and to protect their privileges. Okay? When it comes down to it, social justice proponents often speak in terms of equality of access or equality of opportunities, but then they show that what they're really striving for is equality of outcome because they will reference disparities in society. They'll say there's a wage gap between men and women. So, Usually on face value, they're not going to say, we're just trying to level everything out. They'll say, no, we're just trying to give equal opportunities to people. We just want to make it a fair playing field so that everybody has a fair chance. And so then they'll talk about things, though, like the wage gap. And they'll say, did you know that women only make 70 cents on the dollar compared to men in similar jobs? And then they'll say, that's not fair. And so what should we do? We should pass laws where the government will enforce upon companies and businesses to ensure that women are getting paid, and you'll hear this a lot, their fair share. Okay? But they show when they say things like, we're going to pass laws to make sure that women get paid this much, they're not so much about leveling the playing field as they are making the outcomes equal. Why? Because when you consider why women get 70 cents on the dollar compared to men, it's complex and there are many more factors that come into place than just, here's a woman with the exact same amount of experience in the workforce and the exact same skill level, and she's getting paid less than the man with the exact same amount of experience as her in the same skill level. You know why when you look at the general statistics that women like in upper management positions get 70 cents on the dollar? It's because the majority of women, as they go into the corporate workplace, for example, they go in 
They begin to work. They work for, you know, a portion of their life. And then they say, you know what? I'd really like to have a baby. I'd like to raise a family. That's a God-given desire, a good thing. And so many of them then will leave the workforce for a number of years, have children, raise their family, and then come back to the workforce. But what happens to your earning ability and your experience level, which is figured into how much you're going to get paid, if you voluntarily leave the workforce for a period of several years and then come back? You see, it's going to be lower. The men, on the other hand, stay in the workforce predominantly, And in upper management levels, they often work insane hours, like 80 hours a week. And a lot of the women are like, this is crazy. Why would I want to do this? i got a life. So when you figure all the factors in, the men stay in the workforce. They don't leave to raise a family. They oftentimes work longer hours. And when you factor in those issues, And you look at men and women who have the same number of years in the workforce and work in the same number of hours, women are actually making a slightly higher amount than men. So you see, those involved in this social justice, they're just they just look at numbers like, oh, there's a disparity. It's not equal. And we've got to we've got to compel people by force through government to make it all equal because it's just not fair. Was that? really not fair it's based on these women's choices they chose to leave the workforce if they had stayed in they'd be making as much or more than men after 20 30 years etc so you see just because there is a statistic does not prove the point or the fact looking at incarceration levels Just because there are more people of color incarcerated does not prove that we have a racially biased justice system. It doesn't. It's a complex issue. And all I'm saying is we need to just step back and try and look at all the issues involved. Perhaps the reality is that there are more people of color who are committing crimes and getting prosecuted for it. We, we just simply have to ask that question. Is that a possibility? Sure it is. Sure it is. So these are complex issues. And what social justice is about is about leveling the playing field and, and by force, because it requires governmental intervention, men with guns enforcing by law and imposing penalties upon you, taking your goods and redistributing them to others or forcing you to comply with their concepts. Okay, That's what it comes down to in the end, in the final analysis. So social justice is based, again, in the neo-Marxist worldview of the haves and the have-nots, the oppressors and the oppressed. And it's based in viewing all institutions and interactions based on groups and what group you fit in. These views have permeated our society in the United States. You can hardly name a category in human society that has not been 
affected by this view of social justice. Governmental leaders and policies. Healthcare. Business. Even sports. Why, why is it that you keep seeing now commercials with girls playing football and pressuring people to have girls play football with boys? Because it's justice, right? Social justice. Why is it that men who claim to be women, transgender, have the right to go in and to compete against those who are truly women? You see, they say it's justice. You've got to give them justice. But what is actually happening, like Vodi Bakum pointed out, is you have men brutalizing women. And for those who are truly women, is it just for them to have a man racing against them in the 100 meter in college and they don't stand a chance? Is it just for the MMA fighter to go into the, into the ring with a man who then beats her to a pulp? You see, that is not justice. But according to social justice, that is justice because if you identify as a woman, you have the right to all of the privileges associated with that and all of the opportunities associated with that. So you see, these things have permeated our society. Healthcare is a right. You hear that all the time, right? The poor have a right to health care. Everybody has a right to health care. Well, you know what? If we're going to talk about something that's a right, what we're saying is somebody else owes it to them. And if it's owed to them and it's not given to them, how is that right going to be enforced? It's going to be enforced through some kind of penal system. So what social justice ultimately does, since people are not going to comply with all of their ideas, people don't want to just give up their wealth. Social justice is going to seek to implement governmental reforms because the government can step in by force and can take things and redistribute. I know I'm spending a lot of time to define this before we dig into the scriptures because I want to be clear. And I don't want to misrepresent anybody's positions. So I put hundreds of hours so far listening to proponents of social justice from their own words, reading and listening to their own books to understand where they're coming from. Because if I slander them, I've sinned against them, even if they're wrong. So I need to be careful in defining these terms before we move forward. Okay. One of the other dangers here is this social justice movement is now making inroads into the conservative church. It already took over the mainstream church years ago, and the social gospel was promoted. Literally, the idea that loving God and loving neighbor are equal. I was listening to a Catholic minister who is working to promote justice for the poor around the world. And he was quoting one of, one of the popes from several, several years back 
who said that literally the commandments, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love thy neighbor as thyself, that those were equal. The problem is Jesus said the greatest commandment is love God. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus categorized loving God is greatest. Now, if we're loving God well, we're going to be loving our neighbor. Jesus made that clear. Look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, what it looks like truly to love neighbor and who is our neighbor, right? But the fact of the matter is, the reality of the matter is, we love God above all. What happened in the social gospel movement is that the idea of fighting poverty, justice, doing justice, fighting social ills and conditions became the gospel, And the mainline denominations followed the seminaries that turned liberal a long time ago. You realize that places like Harvard and Princeton were founded to teach the gospel and to teach ministers. And then they went liberal and and the gospel is not there any longer because the gospel became doing outward works of justice to try and help the poor, et cetera, et cetera. And so your mainline denominations, many of them, in practice, abandoned the gospel a long time ago. But now, these ideas of social justice are making inroads into the conservative church. There was a conference in the Presbyterian Church of America called the Revoice Conference, in which they invited in many same-sex attracted individuals to promote the idea that it's okay and you should be accepted and welcomed into the church as a same-sex attracted individual and that that same-sex attraction is not something to fight or battle against as long as you are not engaging outwardly in homosexual practice. I've preached a message in which I applied the scriptures to this concept, but let's just put it in these terms. Does God approve of us wanting or desiring something that he says is wrong? Is it okay for us to want to do something that's wrong? God says clearly, Romans chapter 1, several other chapters in the Bible, that homosexuality is wrong. Same-sex attractions and practices are wrong. Is it okay to desire to do something which God calls an abomination? No. And when you put it in terms like this, I'm a married man, right? Y'all met my wife. What if I told you, well, I'm attracted to other women besides my wife, but as long as I don't commit adultery with them, that's okay. Because that's just a part of my broken and human fallenness. I hope you men in the church would be like, we're going to talk. Behind the woodshed, we're going to talk, okay? What if, what if somebody says, well, I'm attracted to animals, and that's okay? I mean, just put it into any other term of sexual perversion. No, we're to fight against all lusts, okay? But the idea of social justice says that you have to give equal opportunities and advantages to individuals who 
are attracted in these ways, and many of them even promoting these lifestyles. Now we're going to talk at the end of this message about a better way. One of the things I'll just throw in right now, we are all broken and fallen sinners. If there is someone who is struggling with same-sex attraction, they should be able to find help and hope in church with God's people. They should not be afraid to come up to any member of a local congregation and say, I am battling against these thoughts, but I want to keep my thoughts pure. I want to live righteously before God. I need prayer. I need encouragement from the word and exhortation not to think these thoughts. They should, they should feel safe and comfortable doing that. But at the same time, churches should not say, well, just as long as you're not physically carrying it out, you can desire it. And you can indulge those desires, just don't carry it out. You see? I mean, in, in that sense, it's like we give encouragement and counsel to anyone who's struggling with sin. If someone comes and says, and they're a man and heterosexual, I'm, I'm struggling with lust, you know, and struggling with wanting to look at pornography, then we should say, okay, we're going to pray for you. We're going to help you. We're going to try and encourage you not to do that. God doesn't want you to do that. Jesus says, don't look at a woman to lust. Cat, pluck your eye out. He's using hyperbole. He's not saying literally do it because you could be blind and still lust. You realize that. But Jesus is saying, fight against it. And we're going to help you fight against it because we care about you. We love you, okay? But here are the kind of things that are starting to be said in churches as this social gospel movement comes in and they're using the terminology of the world. J.D. Greer, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, I listened to the message, watched him say this from his own lips. Christians should be the greatest supporters of LGBTQ plus rights. You see, he didn't mean that we should be promoting gay marriage out in the world. He didn't mean that we should make it hate crimes for anybody to speak against what they're doing and call it sin. He meant what I just said. You should love people and encourage them to do what's right, but he used their exact terminology. If you hear LGBTQ plus rights, what do you instantly think? They use that terminology in social justice to say they have a right to marriage, marriage equality, and all of these things. Why confuse things by using their terminology rather than using biblical terminology? Okay? So it's creeping into the church. And that's one of the reasons that we're doing these messages. First of all, here I want to note, social justice is not the gospel. Okay? It's not the gospel. Remember, the gospel is what God has done through Christ's life, death, and resurrection to save sinful humans from his condemnation or his justice. There was one prominent church leader recently that tweeted out, social justice is the gospel. At face value, that is to promote a false gospel. 
Because even if you define social justice as doing good things that are just toward people in society, that's still not the gospel. That's works. So social justice is not the gospel. It's humans, human works. Social justice, some say, is a gospel issue that confuses the terminology. The gospel is what God has done. We can live consistently with the gospel when we do that which is right. But to say it's social justice is a gospel issue is to take a term, social justice, which is loaded with baggage. It's a stick of dynamite that is 50 years old with the nitroglycerin oozing out of it. It is loaded with baggage because it's their terminology with all of their baggage attached to it. And to use that and connect it to the gospel is not helpful. It is actually harmful. But what does the Bible say? God demands justice. We are to live justly. So what is justice according to the scriptures? One of the primary words in the Bible for justice is the Hebrew word mishpat. In a broad sense, justice, and this according to the Easton's Bible Dictionary, justice is rendering to everyone that which is his due. Justice is rendering to everyone that which is his due. If you owe someone something and you do not give it to them, then you have perverted justice. You've not done justice. It's to give people what is their due. It is to give people that which is truly their right. And if you are required to give them something that is their right and you withhold it from them, then you've sinned against them. You perverted justice. So if you are stolen from and the judge lets the thief go free and does not require the thief to repay you, then justice has not been done because you were owed recompense for that which was taken from you, right? Does that make sense? The word mishpat in the scriptures shows at least 13 different concepts. You realize when there's like a, a Hebrew word in the Old Testament or a Greek word in the New Testament that's translated into English, those words can have a wide range of meaning and the meaning is determined by the context. So the theological word book of the Old Testament points out that the Bible turns up at least 13 related but distinct aspects of the central idea of mis. Mishpat, which can be translated rightly as justice. One of these times, it's the act of deciding a case of litigation brought before a civil magistrate. Look at Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. So Mishpat can be the act of deciding a case before a magistrate. Deuteronomy chapter 25. And verse 1. 
If there is a dispute between men and they come to court that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence. So notice this, if there's a dispute between men and they come to court that the judges may judge them, the judges may do justice. The word is being used in regarding to the act of deciding the case. The judges will do justice if they do this act of deciding the case. The word mishpat can refer to, secondly, the place of deciding a case of litigation. In 1 Kings 7 and verse 7, it's used in this way to refer to the place where justice will take place. First Kings 7 verse 7 says, Then he made a hall for the throne, the hall of judgment. Mishpat, it's the hall of justice. It's the place where justice will take place or right judgments will be made. Okay? So it's the act of deciding a case of litigation brought before a civil magistrate, the place of deciding a case. The process of litigation can also be called mishpat in the scriptures, such as in Job 22 and verse 4, the process of litigation A case of litigation or a specific case can be called mishpat. Also, a sentence or a decision issuing from a magistrate in his court is called a mishpat or a judgment of justice. Okay? The time of judgment can be called this. So, you see a common thread as as we're looking through these different ways that mishpat can be translated And that is that mishpat has to do with true justice being administered and being carried out. Now, if we're going to ask what is true justice, then we necessarily have to ask the question, well, what does God say true justice is? Okay, because if we define something as an issue of justice and God says it's not, well, clearly we should go with God's definition. In regards to justice, is it not the case that God's commandments trump man's commandments? Is not God's word above man's word? Now, God has given people in societies the liberty to make laws that are consistent with his principles of justice to be carried out in society. Romans chapter 13 tells believers to submit to the authorities that are established, the higher authorities. That's talking about the civil authorities. 1 Peter chapter 2 says that we are to obey all of the institutions of government that God has established, whether to governors who are sent out by kings or to kings themselves. But... If there is a leader in the land, if there's a court in the land, if there is a legislator in the land, and they say that something which God says is unjust is just, 
We don't say, oh, well, God says we're supposed to obey them, so I'm going to say it's just. So, for instance, our Supreme Court has ruled in the Oberfell decision that it is just in the United States of America for homosexuals to be able to legally marry. But what does God say? God says in Romans or Hebrews chapter 13 that marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled, but God will judge fornicators and adulterers. And then God says that homosexual homosexuality is an abomination to him. So can you call something that God calls an abomination marriage when God says marriage is honorable? That doesn't fit. And so it is not a matter of justice to let a man marry a man that he wants to marry. Because God says it is unrighteous for that to happen. And so God's law should inform civil society. You know, a lot of people promote this idea. Even within the Christian church that. You know, you, you just, you shouldn't talk about politics. That's, that's the world's realm. You know, just come and talk about God's things. Well, we live in a secular nation with a secular government. So if they want to, if they want to decide that you can have gay marriage, you know, or whatever else out there in society, that's okay. We just don't have to honor it within the church, but they can do what they want to do. But here's the problem. If God defines something as sin and evil, does anyone have the right to say that it's good and to be celebrated? If God defines theft as wrongfully taking the possession of someone else, do we have a right to redefine theft as standing in the rain with a bucket on your head? No, we're supposed to define it as God defines it. If God says that this is sin and that it is defined thusly, nobody anywhere in the world has a right to say, no, it's not sin and you can celebrate it. So it's an abomination to God for governments to make laws which oppose God's righteousness, holiness and justice. Social justice as rooted in neo-Marxism, regularly promotes gross injustices that are inconsistent with God's true justice. God says justice is giving people that which they are due. And in the case of Mishpat, it is through the legal process, making sure that they get justice, that which is their due. But social justice gives all kinds of rights to people that is not their right, it is not their due. So social justice, as it's defined... And as I have defined it from their own writings and from the dictionaries, social justice is a perversion of justice and a danger to society 
and the church. I want to encourage you never to use the terminology social justice in a positive light. All we have to say is justice. And we've done enough. And if we say justice according to the way God defines it, we've done even better. Okay? Social justice is a perversion of justice, a danger to society and the church. Here's some of the problems with social justice. Number one, social justice invariably perverts true justice. When you look at social justice proponents, they end up perverting true justice. Here's an example. In an article written by Michael Novak, social justice, not what you think it is, he says this. And I quote, I want to point out that if you read the definitions of social justice that appear in more recent writings, they go on to include one of the main elements of the new progressive agenda, reproductive rights. You ever heard that? They'll talk about reproductive rights. As one group puts it, and he quotes a social justice group, the privileged in this world, for the most part, have unfettered access to the reproductive health and education services to decide for themselves when and whether to bear or raise a child. The poor and disadvantaged do not. So notice they're categorizing people based on groups. Remember, social justice is all about putting people into groups. There are principles of God's justice that apply to you, whether you're poor or rich. Justice is justice, no matter who you are. Okay? But they put it into these groups. They continue on. Thus, the struggle for reproductive justice is inextricably bound up with the effort to secure a more just society. Since the poor don't have equal access to things like birth control and this, that, and the other, then making sure that we promote reproductive justice, reproductive rights, is a social justice issue. That's what they're saying. Accordingly, they continue, those who would labor to achieve economic and social justice are called upon to join in the effort to achieve reproductive justice and thereby help relieve the sacred vision or realize the sacred vision of a truly just society for all. Okay, now here's the problem. Michael Novak points this out. He says, the privileged of this world have a chance to control births and control the number of children they have, but the poor don't have this, and that's not fair. He's summing up their argument. So in the name of the poor, progressives introduced the concept of reproductive rights by which they primarily meant abortion. You see, when they talk about reproductive rights, they primarily mean that there's a right to murder your babies. But is that a right that God gives to kill innocent children in the womb? He goes on, it's not so hard to get birth control all around the world. That's by and large happened. What the issue really comes down to is abortion. And abortion is now promoted under the rubric of social justice. How can you be for social justice and against reproductive rights? And when you listen to them like I have, they absolutely include it. And many of them include it to the point of... I don't even, they say, I don't even understand why we're still even discussing the issue 
of women's rights and reproductive rights. We should have decided that a long time ago. But then these wicked people, as bold-faced hypocrites, will say something like, how in the world could you consider defunding the Special Olympics when 272,000 children are going to be affected by that? You wicked person, you are denying them justice. But in the same breath, they will scream out for the blood of innocent children and they will promote funding Planned Parenthood, which will say to people, if you have a child that's going to be born with Down syndrome, you have the right to murder that baby. It is absolute vile hypocrisy and their hands are covered in blood. And they promote their hypocrisy in the terms of justice. And you see how powerful that argument is. Because if you can convince somebody that something is a matter of justice, then you've got them hook, line, and sinker on your agenda. Because now it is unjust not to promote this. What about gay rights? Gay rights, according to them, though, is the full acceptance and given legal privileges and the celebration of homosexual lifestyles. It's not just the idea that they shouldn't be executed or they shouldn't be put in prison if they have homosexual sex. It's there has to be full acceptance, legal privileges and celebration. A group called Arcus under the heading of social justice and their goals said this, we need to promote increased LGBTQ affirming protections. Anticipated outcome, they say. International, regional, national, and local policies fully protect and uphold the human rights and fundamental freedoms of all LGBTQ people and repeal of those policies which curtail such rights and freedoms. They say strategies include challenges to discriminatory legal provisions and practices, existing or proposed, and adoption and implementation of anti-discrimination measures. So you see, they're putting under the rubric of social justice that these folks who are choosing to live in a sinful lifestyle ought to be a protected class in society where they are given full acceptance and celebration of their practices by law. And so so what do we see happen? We see Jack Phillips with the Masterpiece Cake Shop who simply says to a homosexual couple who is planning to get married, I can't in good conscience specifically craft a wedding cake for you Mm -hmm. to do this, but you could go to that shop over there and they'll do that. And what happens? He gets dragged through the courts. Why? Because it's a matter of justice. How dare he deny his services to them? He's discriminating against them. It's a matter of justice. Is that justice according to God's perspective? Was he robbing them of their possessions? Was he threatening their lives 
Was he physically brutalizing them? None of those things. He is simply following his conscience and not celebrating something which God forbids him to celebrate. And he gets dragged through the courts. Now, it got thrown out because the court determined that Colorado, the state of Colorado, showed hostility toward him. They didn't throw it out because they said he had the right to stick with his conscience. And then the state of Colorado immediately turned around and sued him again. You see why? Because it's a matter of justice, according to them. But it's not according to God. They're not going to quit. They're not going to quit. I'm going to throw this in here right now, though. But we don't live in fear, people. I've just preached through the entire book of Revelation, folks. Anybody that was in on any of those messages, you know, we're called not to live in fear. We're called not to think that it's unusual or strange that people that hate God are going to hate us. We're called to keep loving them. We're called to follow our father who causes the rain to fall on the just and unjust alike. And that's given to us as the motivation for us to love our enemies, bless those who curse us, do good to those who hate us, pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us. Okay, none of what I'm saying here is to cause us to live in fear. It is to inform us so that we don't buy into worldly ideas and end up compromising God's truth and the gospel. Okay. Get that? We serve King Jesus. Jesus is triumphant. If we are identified with him because of his work, we win. Even if we die for it in this life, we win. No fear. No fear. I'm not saying any of this because I want to promote that if you find out that your neighbor is a transvestite, that you should avoid them like the plague. Absolutely not. This morning I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and the Apostle Paul is saying, I wrote to you not to associate with those who call themselves a brother who is a sinner, but I did not mean in any way to say don't associate with those in the world who are sexually immoral and covetous and all of these things. He's saying, God forbid, how could you even think that I was saying that you're supposed to separate from worldly people? I mean, look at Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't go in and say, oh, it's okay. It's okay, Mrs. Prostitute or Miss Prostitute. That's okay. You know, you just feel comfortable and keep doing what you're doing. And I'm just going to hang out here with the woman at the well. Jesus specifically brought up her adulteries. Okay. He brought that up to her, but he loved her. He reached out to her when the the pharisaical rabbis wouldn't be caught dead seen with her, right? So you see, it's a both and. And it's even even this, guys. The love of God compels us to reach out to people because God reached out to us in the gospel. We were stinking, loathsome, wicked people in God's sight. And yet he sent his son to die for us. So the gospel informs us that we don't we don't despise and hate and live in fear toward those who are lost and living like lost people live. 
But we go in and we give them truth because here's another thing. It is hateful to refuse to give people who are enemies of God the truth. It is not loving in the least for us to say, oh, well, it's a matter of justice, so I'm not going to tell you that you are lost and bound for judgment because you have a right to do whatever you want to do. That is a, I can think of very little that would be so unloving as that, as to allow lost people to march straight into hell with a pat on the back from us. And you're okay. God loves you. Live the way you're living. You see what I'm saying? There's a balance in here. There's a balance. But those in the social justice movement have an agenda. And it's a powerful agenda that is spreading across our nation. It's already spread across much of Europe. It is entrenched in our higher educational institutions. Listen to me, young people. If you go to college and you go to college in a secular university, you will encounter these ungodly principles. Absolutely, you will. One of the reasons I'm preaching is so that you can learn to identify them. Learn to identify these things. Know what God says about them so that you don't get sucked in. It's powerful. They own the universities. Save a few. So things like hate speech legislation and anti-discrimination protection for LGBTQ and housing and employment are considered social justice issues. It's already been to the Supreme Court. Folks with a bed and breakfast, a homosexual couple wants to stay there. They in good conscience can't let them Stay under their roof. This bed and breakfast is in their own home. It goes to the Supreme Court. They're promoting, by law, anti saying it's discrimination to say that they can't stay under your, your roof. Okay, It's discrimination if you refuse to hire someone because they're a transgender person and they're going to come into your Christian school, a man wearing a skirt, into your Christian school. Those are the kind of laws that they're wanting to push because they say it's justice. You have to allow them to do what they want to do as long as they're not hurting anybody. The problem is they don't believe in God as God defines himself in the scriptures. And so when evil people do evil things, they hurt people, even if they're not directly punching someone in the face or causing direct harm. They're hurting themselves. They're hurting people they convinced of evil because they're going to go to hell. And then they can take down an entire nation because God judges nations. These are just simple biblical realities, are they not? You know, they pervert justice in promoting ideas like the poor have a right to health care. Where does the Bible teach that you have a right to health care? That you have a right for someone to pay for insurance for you so that if you have any type of illness, that illness is paid for. The Bible does not teach that, but it's being declared a right. 
The American Public Health Association says this, social justice is the view that everyone deserves equal rights and opportunities. This includes the right to good health. They don't even say health care is a right here. They say you have a right to have good health. No, you don't. (laughs) You don't have a right to good health. You have an opportunity to promote your good health. But if you have a right to good health, that means somebody owes it to you to give you good health. And that means if you get unhealthy, somebody's wronging you somewhere. According to this, at its face, at its broad face level, that means if you go to work and somebody's got a cold and you get a cold from them, they violated your rights because they've just infected you with with this virus or whatever else. No, no. You don't have a right to health. God even goes on to say things like in his word that you're even going to suffer for righteousness sake. God promises us good health after we die. What a blessing. But he says that you're going to suffer before then. And nobody owes it to you to give you good health. I'm going to wrap us up with something here and then we'll continue on next week with the Lord's help. But let's take for just a moment and look at the positive side of things from Scripture. But let's make sure we're clear about the biblical principles. So regarding the issue of poverty and things like health care. The Bible teaches us very clearly that God is concerned about the most vulnerable persons in society. Okay? God has a concern for the widows. He has a love and concern for the impoverished. He has a love and a concern for the resident Sojourners or aliens. He has a love and concern for the orphans. And he calls for us to have that same love and concern. But as you think about issues like poverty and how the Bible describes it, who are the poor in Scripture that God is referring to? Is it somebody that has an income level, you know, under $20,000 in the United States of America type of thing? Is that the poor as God defines the poor? Is it somebody that has a roof over their head? They have a cell phone. They have Netflix. They have food. They have clothing. No, no. The poor in scripture were men like Lazarus who begged for the scraps that were thrown from the dog's table. The poor in scripture are those that came upon times of destitution where they didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. Okay? We've got to define this according to scripture. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, it gives us some idea of this. 1 Timothy chapter 6 Let's start with verse 17. 
It says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Does that mean the one percenters in the United States of America? Where we live in the wealthiest nation on the face of the earth? Yes, it includes them, but it's definitely not limited to them. It probably includes the majority of people in the United States of America. Because notice what it says. Nor to trust in in certain ridges, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them, the rich, do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. These are our marching orders. If you have material things where you have a roof over your head and you have food and other things in abundance, God calls us to be generous. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may hold, lay hold on eternal life. Now jump back to verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. Now notice verse 8. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. This gives us a hint about how God defines poverty. Poverty would be those that have not food or they have not clothing. Because notice he goes on to say, the rich now, here are you. But he's telling all of us, if you've got food and clothing, be content. Minimum standard there. It's not the poverty level the United States of America has established. Minimum standard, do you have food and do you have clothing? If you have food and clothing, then you're not impoverished as the Bible defines poverty. And this is borne out throughout the Old Testament scriptures as well. Now, it doesn't mean that you may have you may not have difficulty keeping your bills paid in the United States of America. Absolutely. And I'm not trying to undermine how difficult that is. Okay? Not in the least. But I'm chaplain at the Marion County Jail. I talk to guys that when they get out, they're going to go sleep under a bridge. Those guys are impoverished. Most of them, though, still are going to have ability to go get a meal somewhere. Okay. The reality is in the United States of America. That there are resources established throughout the country where it is almost impossible for somebody to starve to death. Unless they are literally being locked in a closet by their parents or someone else and they literally can't get out. If somebody's truly impoverished, they can come to our church or other churches and people give them a meal. We have governmental programs set up to give them a meal, okay? So I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm not trying to... Be insensitive. You know, one of the things that I I pray for every time when I pray with the guys at the jail, I try to do this every time. 
We pray for the guys that are on the street and don't have a roof over their heads because that's tough. All right. I've gone out in the middle of winter in the, in the dark of night trying to find a guy because the guys in the jail told me he was sleeping under such and such bridge and I'm trying to find his bridge so I can get him a coat and help him and make sure that he's got food. All right. But we've got to define things the way the scriptures define them. And in the end, and I want to read us a couple of scriptures to conclude this. In the end, we have a responsibility toward the poor. As God defines them. So it is a matter of justice, according to God. For we who have much materially to care for those who do not. God teaches this in passages such as Deuteronomy 10 verse 17, where he says, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Notice that it's a matter of justice for food and clothing to be given. Okay. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Right? In Job, verse 29, he goes down through a list of things and he says, I have listened when the poor cried out unto me. He says he has righteously judged their cause and not shown partiality against them. And in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, and folks, here's a gospel application. Let's end with a gospel application. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And that's in the context of encouraging the Corinthian church to follow up on the gift to the poor that they said that they would give. And he says, do it remembering that Jesus became poor. He became one of us and walked in the dirt and was spat on and abused so that we might be made rich Welcomed to the table of God, brought into the family of God who owns everything in this universe and become heirs with Christ. And so the admonition is give to the poor, those who are truly needy. This is God's justice. It's God's justice. We don't have to buy into the sinful, worldly idea of social justice in order to do true justice. But God is just. And we are to follow his ways. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would grant us the wisdom to discern the evil of false worldviews. But not to then bask in our privileges in smugness and with no care and concern for those that are needy around us. May we live in love and reach out toward those who are hurting and needy needy because Christ did that to us. 
Pray that you'll bless our meal together as we as we feast together. May we be thankful. And may our hearts go out to those that are less fortunate than us. And maybe we be looking for ways to, to bless them and to even do justice toward them. As you have declared it, I pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Please stand.